So before the episode begins, I just wanted to say that I mentioned at the end of my last episode that I was going through some major upheaval in my life. Actually, at the time that I was editing that episode, we had decided at the advice of two different doctors to put my father on comfort care. His vitals were really good and stable, though, so we were planning on transferring him to hospice, and the thought was that it was going to be a while before he died, so I had gone home to work on my podcast, figuring it would probably be a while before I could do another episode, and since I was so close to being ready to drop that one, I should just hurry it up and get it out. And actually, once I finished editing and publishing the episode, I picked up my phone and it was about 8 o'clock in the morning to see that I had missed the phone call from the ICU and he had died about half an hour before. Um, I'm prioritizing my mental health at this time, especially because my father's affairs were not in order. He had a will and was one of those elderly people who keeps every piece of paper ever, which we're finding both a blessing and a curse. But I'm learning that even when there is a will and you're an only child, things move very slowly. I'm engaging in a lot of what I call next-level adulting, learning to do a lot of new and occasionally scary because they're so new things, and I'm doing okay. I'll keep working on content when I have the time, and I will be at JordanCon in April, so if you are there, you'll see me. Stone won't fall until the podcast of the dragon comes to your device. Hey everybody, my name is Morgan. I'm pondering having my intro begin with some manner of random fact. Welcome to the 40th episode of Podcast of the Dragon. Holy shit, episode 40? That blows my mind, and I can't think of a better way to celebrate than to talk about Swan Sanche and Saladar and the story that Robert Jordan builds as she struggles and schemes and lays the ground for Egwene Alvere's badass rise to power. The Fires of Heaven is filled with scenes that I look forward to each time I reread it. I gleefully anticipate things like Brigida staggering to her feet and shooting Mogedian just as things are starting to look real, real bad for Nynaeve, or Matt sitting on his horse and agonizing before making the choice to warn the column of foot and horse that they're about to march into a Shido ambush or Nynaeve melting Robin's face off for the assist so Rand can slam-dunk him with Balefire. But the moment I look forward to most in the Fires of Heaven would probably have to be Swan manipulating the Saladar Six into officially declaring rebellion against Elida. 
Swan is a popular and beloved character with great reason. Robert Jordan uses her to explore what would happen if the worst fate in the world was inflicted upon the strongest person. In Swan Sanche, we're shown someone with an indomitable spirit, a person that you cannot help but admire. She is somebody that most of us could only hope to emulate if we were in a similar situation, handed certain hopelessness and doom, and yet she seems effortlessly capable of staving off despair and continuously pushing on. Her strength and tenacity are fortified by her sense of purpose and her reasonable fear that no one else will be able to do the job right. No one else has the skill or the drive or the single-mindedness and devotion to the mission to be able to see the dragon to the last battle, to ensure the power of the Aes Sedai is used to help him succeed. She is a character who is fundamentally selfless, who will shrug off even certain death in the name of duty and what is best for all. Swan is a warrior for the light with dark personality traits. She is someone who is willing to bully, manipulate, and betray, who slips back into lying the moment that she is capable of it again. She has pure ends that she will happily achieve by murky means, and she was the first person to suggest that Aes Sedai betray an initiate in training, a kid, that they had a duty to protect by putting a target on her, I, I mean raising her to the Amarlin seat and R.J. sets the stage for it in Book 5. The breaking of the tower had changed many things, many ways of thinking besides her own. These women had led the sisters gathered here, and now they were discussing who should be presented to their new hall of the tower, as if that should not be the hall's choice. It would not be difficult to bring them around ever so gently to the belief that the new Omerlin should be one who could be guided by them, and unknowing, they and the Amarlin she chose for her replacement would be guided by herself. She and Moraine had worked too long to find Randall Thor and prepare him, given too much of their lives for her to risk the rest of it being bungled by someone else. And while I have said before that I have my problems with Swan, I think she's one of Robert Jordan's best-written characters. And the plot lines that are Saladar and the Rebel Aes Sedai, Swan's machinations post-stilling, and the overall conflict within the tower itself, as well as between the two fighting halves, are probably my favorites overall in the books. And it is fair to say that they're the biggest reasons that Egwene is my most beloved character. Her scheming with Swan and their dealings with the Saladar Hall and how they win against assholes who are politically stronger than they are is one of my great joys in the series, and we admittedly wouldn't have that if Swan weren't determined to keep control of shit no matter what. Swan is someone that I would call an elite secondary character. Because RJ has so many characters, I prefer to rate their significance on a scale of 1 to 10, with Rand being a 10, when he's a 10 but the guy in his head's only a 6, Matt, Perrin, and Egwene being nines, and Elaine and Nynaeve, and possibly Moraine depending on my mood being eights. I feel like that works best because both Ravan and Pevin are tertiary characters who are killed in this book, but Pevin's at most a two. I'm guessing some of you are racking your brains trying to think who he is. He's the little Kyrian and banner bearer. Whereas Ravan is at least a five, and if I were being more subjective rather than using numbers, I'd call him a top-tier tertiary character. Anyway, Swan is a seven. 
Overall, she has 1% of the total series word count, and though word count isn't everything when it comes to a character's significance, Tom Marilyn is also a 7, in my completely and totally objective opinion, and he has less than a quarter of Swan's word count, the time RJ dedicates to showing us the world through a particular person's eyes means a lot. In The Fires of Heaven, we get two separate chapters entirely from her perspective, more than 10,000 words that account for 3% of the book. It is the most time he dedicates to her POV by far until Chapter 1 of Knife of Dreams, which is 7,700 words on its own. Only in The Gathering Storm do we spend more time in Swan Sanchez's head than we do in Book 5, and we can never know if that's a Jordan choice or a Sanderson choice. Jordan really puts time into her in the mid-part of the series here, because Swan is crucial to Egwene's overall success, and Swan's actions in the Fires of Heaven are fundamental to Egwene's fate going forward. The first chapter, from Swan's point of view, is Chapter 11, The Nine-Horse Hitch. R.J. tucks two chapters, 11 and 12, which is called An Old Pipe and is from Gareth Brynn's point of view, into a whole section of Elaine and Nynaeve. We start after the prologue with several chapters with Rand and Samat and some Egwene before they leave Roydian for the Jangai Pass following Culloden, and then R.J. switches to Elaine and Nynaeve as they're leaving Terrabon and riding into Ambedicia. They encounter and are drugged by Rhonda Macura in Mardison, and when they leave her place, they are dressed up as a lady and her maid, and they take off in a coach. RJ quickly cuts to these two chapters from Swan and Gareth Bryn, and then we come back to Nine Even Elaine, when we get the chapter A Small Room in Sienda, where they run into Galad and decide to flee and join the circus. We get the foundation of Swan's story in the beginning of Chapter 1, our second part of the prologue, where we see what happens in Coarse Springs with the trial. Everything from Min's perspective, but Jordan waits to let us hear from Swan herself until we're riding into Lugard. And one thing I love about this type of subplot is that the smaller and still significant characters that RJ writes about put him in a place to do some of his best writing. When he has to move a plot and do character development and relationship development and world building in a single chapter, it forces him to be concise. He has to tone it down and not give in to the expansive expository tendencies that he is so prone to engage in with his main characters and his main storyline. And so you get dense, rich chapters full of information and subtext. It's beautiful writing. And it's one of the reasons I really enjoy points of view that you almost never get, or when he writes perspectives from people that you never hear from again. And one of the things that RJ manages to neatly tuck into the Saladar plotline is some exploration of Loghain, who before Book 5 we've seen in only two modes. We see him briefly as a triumphant person, even though he's been captured. He laughs as Rand is watching him in Book 1, not knowing Loghain has seen Rand and can see Taviran. He sees someone who is glowing like the sun, and it's like, oh man, I thought I did some harm. That fucker is going to cause major damage. This is someone who's going to rock the world. The damage I've caused is nothing. Ha 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 ha, as he rolls through the gates of the royal palace in Camelon, laughing his darkly amused laugh, the type of laugh that you get when everything things fucked and it's funny because sometimes things that are dark are funny. Then we get a few encounters with sad, depressed Loghain who just wants to die because he's been gentled. In the fires of heaven, Loghain has some life to him, and he's driven to a certain extent with this hope that Swan has provided for him of, hey, I'll let you get some vengeance. I'll hook you up. 
I know how you can get vengeance against the people who've wronged you. But it's not just the promise of vengeance that's enlivened him. It seems like he thrives off the contention that he has with Swan. Swan and Loghain are two people who have been severed, who are jockeying for control of their group. They are both leaders and both feel that they are rightfully in charge of this crew. They have both suffered this terrible wound that's simultaneously a physical and a psychic trauma, and they're just kind of grasping for what they feel that they're due, which is to run this fucking show. After they have the trial in our prologue slash chapter one, Min, Liana, and Swan are riding in the back of Fjarethrin's wagon. They're being driven to his manor by Joni, and Loghain rescues them. He nails Joni with a rock, and they manage to pull the cart to a stop and see him ride out of the trees with all of their horses. And it says, Is this your work? Swan demanded of him. Loghain smiled as he reined in beside the cart, though there was little amusement in it. A sling is a useful thing, Mara. You are lucky I am here. I didn't expect you to leave the village for some hours yet and barely able to walk then. The local lord was indulgent, it seems. Abruptly his face went even darker and his voice was rough stone. Did you think I would leave you to your fate? Maybe I should have. You made promises to me, Mara. I want the revenge you promised. I followed you halfway to the Sea of Storms on this search, though you won't tell me what for. I've asked no questions as to how you plan to give me what you promised, but I will tell you this now. Your time is growing short. End your search soon and deliver your promises, or I will leave you to find your own way. You'll quickly find most villages offer small sympathy to penniless strangers. Three pretty women alone? The sight of this, he touched the sword at his hip, has kept you safe more times than you can know. Find what you were seeking soon, Mara. He had not been so arrogant at the beginning of their journey. Then he had been humbly thankful for their help, as humbly as a man like Loghain could manage anyway. It seemed that time and a lack of results had withered his gratitude. Swan did not flinch away from his stare. I hope to, she said firmly, but if you want to go, then leave our horses and go. If you won't row, get out of the boat and swim by yourself. See how far you get with your revenge alone. Loghain's big hands tightened on his reins until Min heard his knuckles crack. He shivered with emotions and strong check. I will stay a while longer, Mara, he said finally, a little while longer. And then Min sees his halo again, and it says, She had seen Loghain's halo before, and she knew what it meant. Glory to come. But for him, perhaps above all men, surely that made no sense at all. His horse and his sword and his coat had come from playing at dice, though Min was not sure how fair the games had been. He had nothing else and no prospects except Swan's promises, and how could Swan ever keep them? His very name was likely a death sentence. It just made no sense. Loghain's humor returned as suddenly as it had gone. Pulling a fat, roughly woven purse from his belt, he jangled it at them. I've come by a few coins. We won't have to sleep in another barn for a while. We heard of it, Swan said dryly. I suppose I should have expected no better from you. Think of it as a contribution to your search. She stretched out her hand, but he tied the purse back to his belt with a faintly mocking grin. I would not want to taint your hand with stolen coin, Mara. Besides, this way perhaps I can be sure you won't run off and leave me. Swan looked as if she could have bitten a nail in two, but she said nothing. And then he takes charge, so firmly that Min remarks upon it in her inner narrative. Loghain, in this contentious conversation that he has with Swan, makes some fair points. 
In Robert Jordan's world, women aren't automatically prey to the types of shit that they're so often prey to in, say, fucking Game of Thrones, but realistically, Jordan also understands that, yeah, three pretty women alone in the world aren't going to be particularly safe, and having a big dude with a sword with them is going to make some people who might otherwise be like, oh, hey, easy meat, fuck off. That is a fair point. But Loghain also has to know that Swan is right, and the revenge that she is dangling in front of him is what has brought him back to a semblance of himself. He pushes against her because Swan is a strong-arming asshole who still operates like she can get the same results she used to with her bullying, overbearing, my-way-or-the-highway behavior, despite lacking the political capital to back it up. Her ass can no longer cash the check her mouth instinctively wants to write, and Loghain's pushback illustrates that as he's like, Who the fuck do you think you are, Mara? You're nobody who can push me or tell me what to do. Their party is a spectrum of relationships for Swan, who is still the bully, and we see that with how she treats men. Swan doesn't need to be shitty to get what she wants out of Liana because Liana is loyal and will help her just because, even though Swan doesn't provide full reciprocity. While Liana doesn't still treat her as the Amarlin seat, she's inclined to defer to her and do what she says to a great extent, even though it's not the same relationship as before, and she does want more reciprocity and a little bit more of a relationship between equals, but she's not expecting that perfect relationship because she's also still struggling to adjust her view of Swan. And when they're in Saladar, first talking to the Saladar Six about the Red Aja and Loghain, and first telling them, oh, <clears throat> Loghain told us that the Red Aja set him up as a false dragon, we're not saying they're behind all the other false dragons. No, we're not saying that. We're totally saying that. We're totally not saying that. You, you know what? I'm sure Elida will totally be able to answer any questions you have about that. It says, Swan watched them mull it over in silence. They never considered the possibility that she was lying, an advantage to having been stilled. It did not seem to occur to them that being stilled might have broken all ties to the three oaths. Some I said I studied stilled women, true, but gingerly and reluctantly. No one wanted to be reminded of what might happen to herself. For Loghain, Swan had no worry, not as long as men continued to see whatever it was that she saw. He would live long enough to reveal what Swan wanted him to once she had talked to him. She had not dared risk him deciding to go his own way, which he might well have done had she told him before. But it was his one chance for revenge now against those who had gentled him, surrounded by Aes Sedai again as he was. Revenge only against the Red Aja, true, but he would have to settle for that. A fish in the boat was worth a school in the water. She glanced at Liana, who smiled the faintest possible smile. That was good. Liana had disliked being kept in the dark about her plan for the man until this morning, but Swan had lived too long wrapped in secrecy to be easy revealing more than she had to, even to a friend. So we see here that not only does she hold out on her most loyal ally... But Swan believes in the accuracy of men's visions. She absolutely believes that men knows what she's talking about with her visions. And yet, a few days before they arrive in Saladar, Loghain starts failing. He's struggling to get out of his blankets in the morning because his gentling is starting to catch up with him. And Min is super exasperated because Swan keeps asking her for viewings about Loghain. And then, earlier this very day, just before they arrive in Saladar... She's asking again for a viewing, and Min is kind of like, it's just the same as it was before, and it says, Don't you take that tone with me, Swan said, that blue-eyed gaze sharpening. It is bad enough we have to spoon-feed this great hairy carp to make him eat without you going sulky as a fisher-burden winner. 
I may have to put up with him, girl, but if you start giving me trouble too, you will regret it in short order. Do I make myself clear? Yes, Mara. So, here, earlier in the day, she's acting like she doesn't believe men. Or, like, she's requiring constant proof because it's like, well, do you still see it? Do you still see it? Because he looks like he's fucking dying. But later on in the day, in the next chapter, she says in her, in her narrative that she's not concerned about Loghain dying too soon. So she isn't asking men for confirmation about the glory halo because Loghain wilting makes her suddenly dubious about men's talent. Swan is insisting on getting a viewing because she enjoys having any power or control that she can, particularly over people that she feels entitled to control. The purpose of her asking for viewings is to make men obey her and keep her in the habit. There's no other reason for it. Asshole. So Swan has three very different power dynamics with her three companions, and the way she behaves toward each of them is dependent upon how they react to the way in which she chooses to treat them. Liana tolerates the way Swan treats her, and so Swan is pretty good to her, because she accepts what Swan considers her due and doesn't give her a hard time. They're cool. Min constantly pushes back, and because Min's intimidated by her, Swan responds to that pushback with bullying. And then she has to butt heads with Loghain, because rather than pushing back, he's vying for control, and bullying doesn't work on him. Probably partly because he has no idea who she is, and therefore doesn't realize he should be intimidated. But considering how far she's fallen, and that she's in the same position that he's in, a state that she sentenced him to... I think even if he knew who she was, he wouldn't be intimidated by her. As they're riding into Lugard at the beginning of chapter 11, we get from Swan's perspective. Min and Liana rode close behind her, both tired from the pace the man had set over the week since Core Springs. He wanted to be in charge, and it took little enough to convince him that he was. If he said when they started of a morning, when and where they stopped of a night, if he kept the money, even if he expected them to serve his meals as well as cook them, it was of little account to her. All in all, she felt sorry for him. He had no idea what she planned for him. A big fish on the hook to catch a bigger, she thought grimly. This sounds like the language of someone who's kidding themselves a little, in my personal opinion. When it's an ingrained habit to always use the cannon because you come from a place of great strength and then suddenly you have much less power than you're used to, this choice on her part to resort to manipulation with Loghain sounds a lot like picking your battles. And she's telling herself that it's her choice when truthfully, if you just step back and look at it logically, it's not a battle that she could win. She has no power or leverage to take the leadership away from Loghain, and the conflict of her constantly trying to wrest control from him and the loss of ground from him telling her no, she loses ground every time he tells her no, and that means that she's picking her battles here. And in the meantime, she's thinking ten steps ahead to the plans that she has, and because a lot of those plans involve more or less stabbing him in the back... Maybe, maybe not exactly, but her plans definitely have the flavor of betrayal, and he certainly feels betrayed, and reasonably so, since she doesn't know in the end that they're not going to execute him or whatever, and she doesn't give a shit what happens to him. She doesn't care about him at all. The only thing she cares about is if she can use him as a tool in order to bring Elida down. That's his only purpose to her, and once he served that purpose, if he got run over by a wagon, she wouldn't fucking care. So she may feel like she's running this show because her ultimate plan is to fuck him over, but her telling herself that it took little effort for her to convince him that he was in charge 
It took a lot of effort for her to lie to herself that she's convincing him he's in charge, rather than having a serious conversation with herself about her actual position in this situation and picking her battles and what's really involved with manipulating Loghain here. And it's easy to engage in self-delusion because they've been avoiding people, if at all possible. She hasn't been interacting with too many people where she'd be reflexively trying to act like she's still the Amerlin and then seeing that she has no purchase to actually get anywhere with that. Then they get to the city of Lugard and she seeks out her agent at the inn, which is possibly a brothel. One of Bryn's men in the next chapter refers to it as a stew, which is a synonym for a brothel called The Good Knight's Ride, which is a good name for a brothel. And very quickly, Swan finds herself in a situation that shows her in her face in a way where she cannot delude herself how little power she actually has. She identifies herself to her agent by telling her that she wants a job singing, but Swan's a dumbass and comes during happy hours, so she's given an impromptu interview in the common room where she's forced to show off her legs and laughed at a whole bunch, and then taken into the back, and it says, This woman fit the description of Duranda Tharn perfectly, and surely no other inn could have a name so vile. But why had she responded as she did when Swan identified herself as another agent of the Blue? She had to risk it. Min and Liana, in their own fashion, were growing as impatient as Loghain. Caution got the boat home, but sometimes boldness brought back a full hold. At the worst, she could knock the woman over the head with something and escape out the back. Eyeing the woman's width and height and the firmness of her thick arms, she hoped that she could. A plain door in the corridor that led to the kitchens opened into a sparsely furnished room, a desk and one chair on a scrap of blue carpet, a large mirror on one wall, and surprisingly a short shelf with a few books. As soon as the door was shut behind them, diminishing if not cutting off the noise of the common room, the big woman rounded on Swan, fists planted on ample hips. Now then... What do you want with me? Don't bother giving me a name. I don't want to know if whether it's yours or not. A little of the tension oozed out of Swan. Not the anger, though. You had no right to treat me in that manner out there. What did you mean, forcing me to- I had every right, Mistress Tharn snapped, and every necessity. If you'd come at opening or closing as you're supposed to, I could have hustled you in here and none the wiser. Do you think some of those men wouldn't be wondering if I escorted you back here like a long-lost friend? I can't afford to have anyone wondering about me. You're lucky I didn't make you take Susu's place on the table for a song or two. And you watch your manner with me. She raised a wide, hard hand threateningly. I've married daughters older than you, and when I visit them, they step right and talk proper. You come Mistress Snip with me, and you'll be learning why. Nobody out there will even hear you yelp, but if they did, they wouldn't interfere. With a sharp nod, as if that were settled, she put fists on hips again. Now what do you want? Several times during the onslaught, Swan had tried to speak, but the woman rolled over her like a tidal wave. That was not something she was accustomed to. By the time Mistress Tharn was done, she quivered with anger. Both hands held her skirts in a white-knuckle grip. She held on to her temper every bit as hard. I am supposed to be just another agent, she reminded herself firmly. Not the Amelin anymore, just another agent. Besides, she suspected that the woman might carry out her threat. This was something else still new to her, having to be wary of someone under her eye just because they were larger and stronger. I was given a message to deliver to a gathering of those we serve. She hoped Mistress Tharn took the strain in her voice for being cowed. The woman might be more helpful if she thought Swan properly intimidated. They were not where I was told to find them. I can only hope you know something to help me find them. Folding her arms under a massive bosom, Mistress Tharn studied her. Know how to hold your temper when it suits, eh? Good. 
What's happened in the tower? And don't try denying you come from there, my fine haughty wench. Your message has courier writ large all over it, and you never got that snooty manner in a village. Swan drew a deep breath before answering. Swan Sanche has been stilled. Her voice did not even tremble. She was proud of that. Elida Royhan is the new Amarlin. She could not keep a hint of bite out of that, however. Mistress Tharn's face showed no reaction. Well, that explains some of the orders I've gotten. Some of them, maybe. Stilled her, did they? I thought she'd be Amarlin forever. I saw her once, a few years ago, in Camelin, at a distance. She looked like she could chew harness straps for breakfast. Those impossible scarlet curls swung as she shook her head. Well, done's done. The Ajas have split, haven't they? Only thing that makes sense, my orders and the old buzzards stilled. The tower's broken and the blues are running. Swan ground her teeth. She tried telling herself the woman was loyal to the blue Aja, not to her personally, but it did not help. Old buzzard? She's old enough to be my mother, and if she was, I'd drown myself. With an effort, she made her voice meek. My message is important. I must be on my way as soon as possible. Can you help me? Important, is it? Well, I'm doubting it. Trouble is, I can give you something, but it's up to you to cipher it out. Do you want it? The woman refused to make this any easier. Yes, please. Sally Dara. I don't know who she is or was, but I was told to give her name to any blue who came around looking lost, so to speak. You may not be one of the sisters, but you carry your nose high enough for one, so there it is. Sally Dara, make of it what you will. Swan suppressed a thrill of excitement and made her face dejected. I never heard of her either. I'll just have to go on looking. If you find them, you tell Eildins that I am still loyal, whatever's happened. I've worked for the blues so long I wouldn't know what to do with myself else. I will tell her, Swan said. She had not known that Eildine was her replacement, controlling the blue's eyes and ears. The Amarlin, whatever Aja she came from, was of all but part of none. I suppose you need some reason for not hiring me. I really cannot sing. That should do. As if it mattered to that lot out there. The big woman quirked an eyebrow and grinned in a way Swan did not like. I'll think of something, wench, and I'll give you a bit of advice. If you don't climb down a rung or two, some I said I will take you down the whole ladder. I'm surprised it hasn't been done already. Now go on. Get out of here. Hateful woman, Swan growled in her head. If there was a way to manage it, I'd have her doing penance till her eyes popped. And we get some good introspection in Swan's inner narrative here. This is a wake-up call, and she takes it to heart. She is not going to retain or regain power from a place of strength. And if she wants to reach her ultimate goal, which is to be as in charge of the situation as she possibly can, she better realize that arm-twisting is not going to work. Or, more accurately, she better realize that she's in a weak position of power and there aren't many people left whose arms she can twist. And when it comes to the Saladar Six, she realizes that the best way for her to start manipulating them is to try, or to pretend to try, to twist their arms. Mistress Tharn warned her some Aes Sedai was going to take her down the whole ladder, so she decides to lean into it. Swan's second chapter is chapter 27, called The Practice of Diffidence, where she and Liana are brought before the Saladar Six. After Liana proposes to them that they should elect a hall of the tower and raise an Amarlin in exile, it says, The idea took hold. Swan could see them turning it over in their minds. Whatever the others thought, only Sherium voiced a word against. It will mean that the tower truly is broken, the green-eyed woman said sadly. It already is broken, Swan told her tartly, and instantly wished she had not when they all looked at her. This was supposed to be purely Liana's notion. She herself had a reputation as a deft manipulator, and they could well be suspicious of anything she proposed. That was why she had begun by scathing them. They would not have believed her if she had begun with mild words. 
she would come at them as if she still thought herself Amerlin and let them put her in her place. By comparison, Liana would seem more cooperative, only offering the little she could, and they would be more likely to listen to her. Doing her own part had not been difficult until it came to pleading. Then she had wanted to hang them all in the sun to dry, sitting here, doing nothing. You didn't have to worry about them being suspicious. They think you were a broken reed. If everything went properly, they would not learn differently. A useful reed, but a weak one, not to be thought of twice. It was a painful accommodation to make, but Deronda Tharn had shown her the necessity in Lugard. They would accept her only on their terms, and she would have to make the best of it. RJ has Swan learn this quick lesson from Deronda Tharn so she can approach the Saladar Six from a much humbler place, and maybe, just maybe, get what she wants. I am a huge fan of Saladar. And not just because the idea of a full third of the Aes Sedai saying, fuck you, we do what we want, to Elida is incredibly pleasing to me. Saladar allows RJ to show us what it means to be Aes Sedai outside of the cultural trappings of the Tower. The opulence and majesty of Tarvalin and the Tower aid the Aes Sedai in being larger than life. It makes them more magical, more regal, more elevated, more all of it. Tarvalin and the tower are extra. Having a city is extra. Having a tower with a palace and a library. Having uniformed guardsmen and liveried servants. Having large supplies of wealth to dip into. And an island populated with folks who treat you as de facto nobility. All of that adds weight and meaning to being Aes Sedai, on top of the fact that you can wield magic. Saladar lets Jordan show us what happens when individual Aes Sedai are forced to give things up and cope with adversity. And because what Elida did was so obviously not legal, or even if it seemed like it might kind of sort of been legal, or at least that the accusations against Swan were serious, bringing outside soldiers into a tower legal affair means that what Elida did was super sketchy, and so a lot of the sisters who stayed in the tower had to be looking sideways at the situation. There's no way that all of the people labeled as loyalists because they chose to stay are particularly loyal to Elida. But plenty of insignificant Aes Sedai who have no stake in politics probably have a head-in-sand attitude of the long-lived that this too shall pass, even though this time it actually might not because it's the end of the fucking world. And you've got to think that there are plenty of Aes Sedai who honestly don't really give a shit who the Omerlin is and are probably resentful that there's been any kind of political upheaval because they're comfortable and because they don't have a stake in politics, they don't want to deal with the bullshit. I bet a good quantity of the Browns that chose to stay didn't stay in support of Elida, and they didn't even choose to stay because they wanted to support a whole tower. They chose to stay because there was no fucking way they'd be able to take their library with them to Saladar, and they weren't going to leave all their research behind. And there had to be Greys, who were super doubtful of all the legality of it, but very bewildered by the lack of precedent, and so they weren't quite sure what to do. So they're like, well, I guess we'll just kind of stay here because it's comfortable and we live here. And yellows who feel like, well, where else are we supposed to go? We don't actually have hospitals anywhere else, so we have to stay in Tarvalin because that's where people bring their sick. For people who weren't so invested or emotional, privileged Aes Sedai, or Aes Sedai who feel like they can afford not to care, or who are foolish enough to feel like they can afford not to care, 
a lot of them choose to stay because the trappings of being an Aes Sedai are comfortable, and the idea of living in a shitty ghost town where none of your furniture matches and you have to room with other sisters and run down little houses when you didn't have to share a room even as a fucking novice, it's definitely not worth it. Not for something that you really don't care about that much or think is that important. Plenty of the Aes Sedai and Saladar were likely swept up in the chaos of the coup as the event unfolded. And for a lot of them, the non-blues at any rate, the ones who could have hidden until it was over, certain that they weren't the targets of any political wrath, Elida's choice to bring soldiers into the situation puts her firmly in the wrong no matter what Swan did. Choosing to shed blood on the tower grounds was drastic and abhorrent, and if she'll do that to depose a blue, how are any of them safe? But after several months, with no common cause beyond looking at the coup and thinking, that was fucked up, non-blues are asking themselves, was it unforgivably fucked up? And RJ even gives us the opportunity to see how women might be weighing Elida's crimes versus Swan's. After Swan and Liana are set down by the Saladar Six for presuming to lecture them as if they were still Aes Sedai, we get, While what was done to you followed the letter of the law narrowly, Sheriam said gently, we agree that it was malignantly unjust, an extreme distortion of the law's spirit. The chairback behind her fire-red head was incongruously carved with what seemed to be a mass of snakes fighting. Whatever rumor might say, most of the charges laid against you were so thin that they should have been laughed away. Not the charge that she knew of Randall Thor and conspired to hide him from the tower, Carlinia broke in sharply. Sheriam nodded. But be that as it may, even that was not sufficient for the penalty given, nor should you have been tried in secret without even a chance to defend yourself. Never fear that we will turn our backs on you. We will see that you both are cared for. So the people in Saladar aren't driven by the same thing. And they don't have much of a common cause. They're riddled with moles, and the loyalists among them validate the desires that so many have of wanting to slip back to Tarvalin, because it's comfortable there, and their shit's there, and they want their thousand gold crowns a year and allowance, and to not have to share a room, and to know what they're supposed to be doing, and have it all make sense. And the only thing that's keeping them together is the fact that they are under firm leadership in Saladar, and have been from the beginning. So these Aes Sedai clustered in the forest are kind of still held together fairly well, even though they don't know what to do. And that has them very prime for Swan's plan, because they have leadership, and the leadership has provided infrastructure and is doing a decent job holding them together. They just need a course of action, which Swan and Liana map out with a bunch of helpful suggestions, and in so doing, encourage the Aes Sedai and Saladar to officially become rebels. The Saladar Six, Shirim, Anaya, Morvran, Bannon, Carlinia, and Mirel, are a very interesting group of characters and one that I particularly like. I have a soft spot for them. Book 5 has started to open up with characters, but we don't have quite the avalanche that we get in Book 6 where it just starts to snowball. We're getting the beginning of a deluge of nobles and Aes Sedai in this book, what Arady and Seth of Watt spoilers call Name Salad, and I think I'm fond of these six characters because we get a chance to know them before we snowball into the growing number of characters. They have a distinctness and personality that the Saladar Hall of the Tower, for example, except for a couple of the characters, never gets. I also like the six because there's nothing quite like them. We've looked to individual authority figures before now among the Aes Sedai. We've had Moraine and Varen, Swan, even Elida. 
Here we have a self-appointed committee, which is a very different style of government from what Aes Sedai are used to. It's almost as if the Aja heads are in charge, which is something we later learn has occasionally been a thing over 3,000 years of Aes Sedai political fuckery. Every once in a while, when maximum fuckery abounds, the Aes Sedai who are in charge of the Ajas will just take over because it's like the fucking Amarillin seat sucks and the Hall of the Tower is ineffectual. I guess we're going to be in charge now. But there are some key differences that make Saladar's political machination some of the most satisfying to dig further into on rereads. The subtleties and layers R.J. builds are absolutely artful, and arguably some of his most delicate use of inference and subtext. First off, unless Anaya is first selector of the blue, which is never made clear, and I'm of the opinion that she's not, I think it's Lilane. Only one of the Saladar Six is also an Aja head. Mirel is Captain General of the Greens, so there are several women in Saladar, women elected to positions of leadership by the members of their Ajas, who have members of their Ajas on this council in a position of authority that they had no say in and did not sign off on. And more than that, people are going to go to that person and treat her as a leader, and then you as an Aja head have no say in that, so how much power do you have really? The Six seem to exist outside of the rules, which gives them comfort to push boundaries. Easily as problematic as the majority of the Six not being Aja Head approved is the fact that they have two blues and no yellows. They're a council with a powerful voice and a lot of authority and no official command from their Ajas, and they're not representing all the Ajas. It's a huge problem, especially for Ramonda, who ends up being one of the biggest political blocking points in Saladar. She is a pain in the ass for Egwene, and a pain in the ass for the Blue Sitters, and a pain in the ass for the Saladar Six as well. This very old yellow sitter coming out of retirement. She is rightfully bothered by the fact that there are no yellows on the Saladar Six, and it's one of the many reasons that she's so obstinate, and one of the reasons that she treats them as an opponent which helps Egwene in playing them against each other, so I guess it's lucky for Egwene. As for the two blues, both of them have precedent as being in charges, so we get into Saladar and are greeted by a council of people in authority, including Shiriam, the mistress of novices, someone that we instinctively trust to be in charge, and then Anaya, who is so often described as motherly, we're introduced to Anaya first in Book 2 in Moraine's head. Moraine is incredibly fond of Anaya and always thinks to herself about how she makes you feel safe and accepted, which, think about it. Moraine is the wise wizard who runs the show through Book 1, and the first serious time we spend in her head, we get a moment of vulnerable relief at Anaya's presence. She's so grateful she has at least one friend among the Aes Sedai who come to Faldara, I don't know if Anaya ever quite gets the credit that she deserves, considering Moraine describes feeling a mother's comfort from her the first time we meet her. Regardless, when Swan and Liana are rushed into the common room of what will come to be known as the Little Tower, there is a sense in the narrative if you step back and gain a little omniscience and consider what you know of the story up to that point, if you're a first-time reader, there's a sense of, oh, okay, there are competent people in charge here. As for a first-time reader, the number of Aes Sedai that they really know at this point of the story is a pretty small pool. The Fires of Heaven is when RJ really starts throwing sisters' names at you, and then Lord of Chaos is when he ups the ante. 
But the Saladar Six are his bridge, because for tertiary characters, this council is pretty damn significant. It's populated by two characters that we've had decent development of in Shiriam and Anaya, two characters that we've had bare introduction to, Carlinia, the White Sister, who we see in The Great Hunt. She's in the antechamber with Alana as Moraine is summoned to Swan. And we have heard about Mirel. We know that she is the sister that Lon's bond will pass to. And then there are two sisters that we have never heard of before who Swan specifically calls out in her inner narrative in chapter 27, just as the chapter is getting going. It says, She wished that Morvrin and Bayonin had not been added to the group. Morvrin was skeptical of everything despite her placid, sometimes vaguely absent look, a stout brown with grey-streaked hair who demanded six pieces of evidence before she would believe fish had scales, and Bayonin, a pretty grey with dark honey hair and blue-grey eyes so big they constantly made her appear slightly startled. Bayonin made Morvrin seem gullible. So RJ purposefully gave us four Aes Sedai that we had some manner of familiarity with, so Morvrin and Bayonin would stand out a little bit more. Swan's not just bothered by the fact that Morvrin and Bayonin are harder to manipulate because they don't believe things just because they read them on the internet. She's disadvantaged further because she just doesn't know them as well. Anaya and Shiriam are both of her Aja. Shiriam and Carlinia were novices and accepted with her, and so was Mirel. In the text, In the Fires of Heaven, it says that Mirel was a novice during the Aegeal War when the others were accepted, but in New Spring, Mirel is also accepted and studies with Moraine. And I think that RJ develops that relationship in the prequel to show why Moraine would have picked Mirel to pass Lon's bond to. And so it's a retcon, but it's also officially canon in the Wheel of Time companion. And in my opinion, he shouldn't have done it. Mirel's record of being the only sister to save two warders whose Aes Sedai died makes her appropriate to accept Lon's bond on its own, and they could easily have become friends as adults and full Aes Sedai. There are times when retconning is 100% acceptable, and I don't think this was one of them. Anyway, Swan knows four of the six fairly well, and the fact that she knows so little about Morvern and Bayonin, she says to herself that she and Liana know enough of any of the sitters out there to disqualify them from being picked to be the Omerlin seat, but that's not the same as knowing enough about someone to be able to successfully manipulate them, particularly if they are prone to be skeptical. We never learn how the Saladar Six come to be on the council together. When they start discussing potential Amarlins, you get more friends saying, well, Sherriam's kept us together from the beginning when we would have all been running around like headless chickens. But that's all we learn, just that Sherriam was in charge from the start. There's nothing to say when or how or under what circumstances the other five people come to be on the council. But Sherriam gets praise heaped upon her because she did such a wonderful job, not just keeping them all together when they would have been running in a hundred different directions, but making sure that everybody's got food and places to sleep, and she's just been on top of it, and what a great job she's done. And I have to wonder if she wasn't forewarned. Elida's first and main conspirator heads the Black Aja, and the fact that the person keeping the Aes Sedai and Saladar together is also a dark friend can't be coincidence. The Black Aja has standing orders to weaken the tower, and nothing makes it weaker than having a large number of its sisters entrenched, organized, supplied, and well-led, and opposing the others. 
and a heads-up to help effect an organized flight of the Blues and as many other sisters as could reasonably be convinced to flee with them is a smart way to go. So we can assume that the coup was never meant to be pulled off smoothly. Elida was likely hoping for a swift transfer of power with minimal fuss, but Alviaren would want it to be as messy and alarming as possible, with the goal to have plenty of sisters, even non-Blues, feeling marginalized and unsafe. Having leaders prepped for an organized escape prevents any deer-in-headlights behavior, the sort of behavior that Elida was undoubtedly counting on, where by the time sisters had thought through what to do, it would all be over. But Danelle slash Masana, with her Masonic mercenaries, tried to make sure it was a violent enough coup that plenty of sisters would flee, and I'm guessing she had a number of Black Aja minions stoking panic to encourage flight along with a pre-planned escape, so that as many Aes Sedai's could be encouraged to would be able to get out of the tower and out of the city before the bridges were secured. Sherium's orders are to keep the rebellion intact and keep them away from the tower, so she is planning for logistics, not politics, though there is some political delicacy going on, because she's pretending to have one goal while actually having another. Swan tells the Saladar Six the story of Loghain and the Red Aja, and then afterwards watches them mull it over and thinks to herself, suckers, they don't even think that I might be lying, ha <laughs> ha, and it says, this changes a great deal, Sherium said after a time. We cannot possibly follow an Omerlin who would do such a thing. Follow her, Swan exclaimed, for the first time truly startled. You are actually considering going back to kiss Elida's ring? Knowing what she has done and will do? Liana quivered in her seat as if she wanted to say a few choice words herself, but they had agreed that Swan was to be the one to lose her temper. Sherium looked a trifle embarrassed, and spots of color floated in Mirel's olive cheeks, but the others took it as calmly as sunshine. The tower must be strong, Carlinia said in a voice as hard as winter's stone. The dragon has been reborn, and the last battle is coming, and the tower must be whole. Anaya nodded. We understand your reasons for disliking Elida, and even hating her. We do understand, but we must think of the tower and the world. I confess I do not like Elida myself, but then I have never liked Swan, either. It is not necessary to like the Amarland Seed. There is no need to glare so, Swan. You have had a file for a tongue since you were a novice, and it is only roughened with the years. And as Amarland, you pushed sisters where you wanted, and only seldom explained why. The two do not make a likable combination. I will try to smooth my tongue, Swan said dryly. Did the woman expect the Amarland Seed to treat every sister like a childhood friend? but I hope what I've told you changes your desire to kneel at Elida's feet. If that is your smoother tongue, Mirel said idly, I may have to smooth it myself if we do allow you to run the eyes and ears for us. We cannot go back to the tower now, of course, Sherium said, not knowing this, not until we are in a position to see Elida deposed. Whatever she has done, the Reds, they will continue to support her. Bayonin stated it as fact, not objection. It was no secret that the Reds resented the fact that there had not been an Amarlin from their Aja since Bonwin. Morvran nodded heavily. Others will as well, those who have thrown themselves too much behind Elida to believe they have any other choice, those who will support authority, however vile, and some who will believe we are dividing the tower when it must be whole at any cost. All but the Red Sisters can be approached, Bayonin said judiciously, negotiated with. Mediation and negotiation were Hurrah's reason for existence. It seems we will have use for your agents, Swan. Cherium looked around at the others. "'unless anyone still thinks we should take them away from her. 
Morvern was the last to shake her head, but she did it finally, after a long study that made Swan feel she had been stripped, weighed, and measured. She could not stop a sigh of relief. Not a short life drying up in a cottage, but a life of purpose. It might still be a short life. No one knew how long a stilled woman could live, given something to replace the one power in her life. But with purpose, it would be long enough. So Mirelle was going to smooth her tongue for her, was she? I'll show that fox-eyed green. I, I will hold my tongue and be glad she isn't doing more than look at me is what I'll do. I knew how this would go. Burn me, but I did. Thank you, I said I, she said in the meekest tone she could find. To call them that pained her. It was another break, another reminder of what she was not anymore. I will try to give good service. Mirelle did not have to nod in such a satisfied way. Swan ignored a small voice that said she would have done as much or more in Mirelle's place. If I may suggest, Liana said, it is not enough to wait until you have enough support in the hall of the tower to depose Elida. Swan put on an interested look as though hearing this for the first time. Elida sits in Tarvalon, in the White Tower, and to the world she is Amelin. At the moment you are only a flock of dissidents. She can call you rebels and agitators, and coming from the Amelin seat the world will believe it. We can hardly stop her being Amberlin before she is deposed, Carlinia said, shifting on her chair in icy contempt. Had she been wearing her white French shawl, she would have snapped it around her. You can give the world a true Amberlin. Liana spoke not to the white sister, but to all of them, eyeing each in turn, sure of what she was saying, yet at the same time offering a suggestion that she merely hoped they would take. It had been Swan who pointed out that the techniques she employed on men could be adapted for women. I saw Aes Sedai from every Aja save the Red in the common room and in the streets. Have them elect a hall of the tower here and let that hall select a new Amarlin. Then you can present yourselves to the world as the true White Tower in exile and Elida as a usurper. With Loghain's revelations added in, can you doubt who the nations will accept as the real Amarlin? This news about Elida and the Reds and Loghain has to be such a relief for Sheriam, who has been doing a delicate dance of working to keep these Aes Sedai and Saladar at all costs, as if her life depends on it, because it does, while it's pretending to be seriously weighing all options, because, yes, the tower must be whole. Having a reason to stay the course that her evil lords and masters have ordered her to take is super helpful. She no longer has to walk this delicate line anymore. There's no more pretending. She can now just be like, well, this is what we're doing. What a relief. What a mental weight off. This also has to throw Bayon in for a loop. She's kind of in the same position as Sherium, only mirrored. She's there with an agenda, and she's having to act like she's weighing all options, too. Elida sent her to infiltrate and manipulate these dissidents back into the tower, and while she is far from the only mole that the Loyalists have there, the former sitters who were sent by their Aja heads in the tower are driven most by duty and by what's best for the tower as a whole. Bayonin is driven by ambition. She's relatively young. She's 63 or 64, and so she is too young to be a sitter by conventional standards. And I'm wondering if a seat in the hall of the tower is her eventual goal, or if she was even hoping to be Amarlin one day, and she's trying to lay the foundation for a very storied career. She wants to be one of those Aes Sedai that novices are taught about, and she took this mission as a way to make her name, because big risks, big rewards. It's a beautiful potential shortcut to political power and political gain, and it's an important job because she thinks all these women are criminals. The breaking of the tower is the ultimate treason to her, except now things are kind of muddied, because is it a bigger treason than setting up false dragons? Bayonin came to Saladar with a very strong purpose. With Swan's revelations, she's kind of at odds and adrift and not sure what to do with herself now, 
But because she's driven by ambition, which in the end more or less boils down to self-interest, the minute that Egwene gets captured, she knows exactly what to do. She dips and runs back to Elida, false dragons or no. But the next few months are going to be kind of stressful for Bayonin because she's no longer exactly sure how she's supposed to play things. We get a few more great things in the quoted text. Anaya flat out admits that she thinks Swan is an asshole. She makes the fair point that you don't have to like your leader, you just have to be confident that they're not utterly catastrophic or a total fool. And it's funny, especially because Anaya sort of throws Swan's thoughts back at her. Swan starts the chapter calling them out. She calls them rudderless and says that their activity is all for play and show. And after wishing to herself that Morvern and Bayonin had not joined the party, it says, Elida has the tower in her fist and you know she will mishandle Randall Thor, Swan said scornfully. It will be pure luck if she doesn't panic and have him gentle before Tarman Gaiden. You know that whatever you feel about a man channeling reds feel ten times more. The White Tower is at its weakest when it should be at its strongest, in the hands of a fool when it must have skilled command. She wrinkled her nose, staring them in the eye one by one. And you sit here, drifting with your sails down. Or can you convince me that you are doing more than twiddling your thumbs and blowing bubbles? Do you agree with Swan, Liana? Anaya asked mildly. Swan had never been able to understand why Moray liked the woman. Trying to get her to do anything she did not want to was like hitting a sack of feathers. She did not stand up to you or argue. She just silently refused to move. So, what amuses me most about this is that Moraine refers to Anaya as motherly. And this trait that Swan dislikes so much about her is also quite motherly. Bullying is childish behavior. It's the behavior of someone who threw a fit once and had it accommodated and so continues because it got the desired results. And the best way to deal with that sort of bullshit is to not engage. So Anaya won't give Swan a cookie and won't argue about it or even acknowledge that she's yelling for one. And it really gives that feeling of being told no once and then referred back to answer A. And that frustrates people like Swan. So Swan is thinking to herself, I don't like Anaya because she's impossible to bully. And Anaya flat out says to her, you're a bully and it makes you unlikable, which it does. So Swan goes into her meeting with the Six with this multi-pronged plan, which starts out by gulling them with a show of tempers so that they can put her in her place. She and Liana want to lock these women into a rebellion, and they do that by giving them a sense of righteousness. What was done to Swan was unjust, and the coup was incredibly sketch, but Swan was hardly innocent, and that can make it difficult to be filled with outrage, you know? Terrible, unjust, justice for Swan, because Swan did some sketchy fucking shit and she definitely wasn't necessarily in the right. So painting the Reds as villainous criminals by setting up false dragons makes it much easier to maintain resolve as rebels because it is very black and white. And it shows that a Red is the wrong choice to lead when the dragon is reborn because they can't be trusted with a man who can channel. They can't be trusted to do their job properly. They can't be trusted to do what's right. But the power of righteousness, even when bolstered by having an Omerlin and a Hall in exile, even when you're approaching nobles and nations and being like, we're right and the assholes in Tarvalin are wrong, it's a terribly weak position when you're living in a ghost town in the middle of Altara. So Swan offers the most powerful gift that she could offer the Saladar Six. The potential for serious intelligence and the ability to plant misinformation. It says... I headed the Blue Odge's net of eyes and ears before I was raised Amarlin. More surprise. 
With a little effort, every blue agent and those who serve me as Amralyn, too, can be sending her reports to you by routes that keep her ignorant of their final destination. It would take considerably more than a little work, but she had already sketched most of it out in her head, and there was no need for them to know more at the moment. And they can continue sending reports to the Tower, reports containing what you want Elida to believe. She had almost said we. She had to watch her tongue. They did not like it, of course. The women who tended the networks might be unknown to all but a few, but they were every one Aes Sedai. They had always been Aes Sedai. But that was her only lever with which to pry her way into the circles where decisions were made. Otherwise, they would likely stuff her and Liana into a cottage with a servant to look after them, and maybe a rare visit from Aes Sedai who wanted to examine women who had been stilled until they died. They would die soon in those circumstances. Light, they might even marry us off. Some thought that a husband and children could occupy a woman enough to replace the one power in her life. More than one woman, stilled by drawing too much of Sidar to herself, or in testing Tirangriel for their uses, had found herself being matched with potential husbands. Since those who did marry always put as much distance as possible between themselves and the tower and its memories, the theory remained unproven. It should not be difficult, Liana said diffidently, to put myself in touch with those who were my eyes and ears before I was keeper. More importantly, as Keeper of the Chronicles, I had agents in Tarvalon itself. Startlement widened a few eyes, though Carlinia's narrowed. Liana blinked, shifted uneasily, smiled weakly. I've always thought it foolish that we paid more attention to the mood of Ibu Dar or Band or Eben than to the mood of our own city. They had to see the value of eyes and ears in Tarvalon. Swan. Leaning forward in her thick armed chair, Morvrin said the name firmly as though to emphasize that she had not said mother. That round face looked more stubborn than placid now, her stoutness a threatening mass. When Swan had been a novice, Morvrin rarely seemed to notice the mischief of the girls around her, but when she did, she had taken care of matters herself in ways that had everyone sitting straight and walking small for days. Why should we allow you to do as you want? You have been stilled, woman. Whatever you were, you are no longer Aes Sedai. If we want these agents' names, you will both give them to us. There was a flat certainty to that last. They would give them, one way or another. They would, if these women wanted them enough. Liana shivered visibly, but Swan's chair creaked as she stiffened her back. I know that I am not Amralyn anymore. Do you think I don't know I was stilled? My face has changed, but not what is inside. Everything I ever knew is still in my head. Use it. For the love of the light, use me. She took a deep breath to calm herself. Burn me if I let them shove me aside to rot. And Mirel spoke into the pause. A young woman's temper to go with a young woman's face. Smiling, she sat on the edge of a stiff-backed armchair that could have stood in front of a farmer's fireplace if the farmer had not cared that the varnish was flaking. The smile was not her usual one, though languid and knowing at the same time, and her dark eyes, nearly as large as Bayonin's, were full of sympathy. I am sure that no one wants you to feel useless, Swan, and I am sure that we all want to employ your knowledge fully. What you know will be of great use to us. Swan's desperate for this. She is desperate for any power, any influence or control that she can manage. Anything that gives her that feeling that she's making a difference. Any kind of little pleasure, because that's the drive that she has. That's what she's good at. That's what she gets off on. And being without power is terrible for her. So much so that when nine even Elaine show up and the ring Terangriel is brought to light and explained to the Saladar Six and Swan learns of it, she takes Nynaeve aside and insists on private lessons and tell Iron Riyadh, trying to blackmail her or bully her into it to get what she wants, insisting to Nynaeve, you're going to teach me this, and if you don't, then the Aes Sedai are going to learn that you were passing yourself off as a full sister. 
because she will bully whoever she feels like she can get away with bullying and do whatever she feels she must if she wants something badly enough. And when it comes to the power of the Tarangriel, an object of the power that doesn't take the power and that allows you to have access to a place of infinite power, she's gotta have that. Especially because just as Swan is feeling pretty damn good about getting what she wants out of the Saladar 6, she's going to have this life of purpose, might be short, but she's going to be able to influence things and manage some control despite how badly a lie to fuck things up for her. Gareth Bryn shows up. And his arrival immediately weakens her position because she's forced to explain herself to the Saladar 6, and she's kind of in the doghouse once they find out that she swore an oath and then was sort of like, yeah, I'll fulfill it whenever I'm out of here. Bryn arrived in Lugard, which with Jordan's beautiful world building comes off as Ranland's version of a capitalist hellscape the day after Swan, Liana, Min, and Loghain. RJ starts chapter 12 from his point of view, and it says, a gust of wind swirling down the Lugard street caught Gareth Bryn's velvet hat, sweeping it from his head directly under one of the lumbering wagons. An iron rim wheel ground the hat into the hard clay of the street, leaving a flattened ruin behind. For a moment he stared at it, then walked on. It was showing travel stains anyway, he told himself. This is just lovely. Once again, RJ is packing a ton of stuff. Symbolism, character development, storytelling, world-building, and a relatively small number of words compared to how he moves the main sections of the story. So he gives you the symbol of the Lord, the fancy Lord, with this hat that Carolyn feels Bryn should wear for his station. And to let you know that Lugard will be a turning point for his story, Jordan has it flattened by this dusty wheel on a merchant's wagon in the shitty city that he shows us in these back-to-back -back chapters so we can say that we've seen it and then never shows us again because it's a shithole and once Ranland's industrial revolution is in full swing it will probably soon be blanketed in smog and its river will catch fire. I don't know if it has a river but if it does it seems like the sort of place where it would catch fire. Anyway. The squashed hat is both symbolism and foreshadowing that Bryn's arc is leading him toward once again being a general, because he learns things in Lugar that set him back on his path. He's gone from being a lord and judge riding after a bounty, sinking this woman named Mara, who broke oath and owes him money, to what he feels is more or less a rescue mission. His soldiers have gone looking around Lugard, asking about the women, and so they learn about Mara trying to get the job singing in Durand of Tharn's inn. As Swan was heading back toward the nine-horse hitch where Min and Liana and Loghain were waiting for her, she passed white cloaks and kind of turned her head away because she forgot for a second that she doesn't have an Aes Sedai face anymore. So they took note of her, and Bryn's men hear about that and relay the news to him. And it says, Bryn frowned. White cloaks? What would the Children of the Light want with Mara? He would never believe she was a dark friend. But then he had seen a baby-faced young fellow hanged in Camelin, a dark friend who had been teaching children in the streets about the glories of the Dark One. The Great Lord of the Dark, he had called him. The lad had killed nine of them in three years as near as could be discovered, when they looked like turning him in. No, that girl is no dark friend, and I'll stake my life on it. White Cloaks were suspicious of everyone, and if they took it into their heads that she had fled Lugar to avoid them, he booted Traveler to a canter. And a little bit further, it says, as he's assessing his soldiers and thinking about how old they are, he had been a fool to risk bringing them into Murundi just because he had to know why a woman had broken an oath, and maybe with white cloaks after them. 
No telling how far or how long from home before it was done. If he turned back now, they would have been gone more than a month before they saw Core Springs again. If he went on, there was no guarantee the chase would stop short of the Arth Ocean. He should be taking these men and himself home. He should. He had no call to ask them to try snatching those girls out of White Cloak hands. He could leave Mara to White Cloak justice. RJ loves to do a thing where he sends characters to help or rescue other characters who don't need help. You know, he has Rand send Matt to go get Elaine from Saladar and Lord of Chaos, and Rand tells Matt, hey, Egwene might be in trouble, and Matt shows up thinking Egwene needs to be rescued, and there's often a comedy of errors of people just assuming other people need help when they don't. This chapter is called An Old Pipe, because Bryn pulls out his pipe and it has his house crest on it, which is a bull collared by the rose crown, or collared by a wreath of roses that is symbolizing the rose crown. And Jordan has Bryn put Morgase to rest. He shifts him from being the angry, wounded ex-consort and puts him on the cusp of general mode by having him think about how he needs a new pipe. And then he decides to have his men stop walking on eggshells around him, not daring to breathe the queen's name. And so he tells them an awkward story about how Swan Sanche basically humiliated him. And Elida and Swan ganged up on Morgase and then came out and Swan ripped him a new one. And then they ride off into the sunset, still in pursuit. And the next time we see him is 15 chapters later, when his soldiers are noticed by the warders who interrupt Swan and Liana's meeting with the Six to inform them both that these veterans are approaching the village and then Mirel's Ilianer warder comes into the common room and says, One of the writers is coming on and if my aged mother said different, I'd still name him Gareth Bryn. And it says, Swan stared at him. Her hands and feet suddenly felt cold. Strong rumor said that Mirel had actually married this Newell and her other two warders in defiance of convention and law in every land Swan had ever heard of. It was the sort of incongruous thought that drifted through a stunned mind, and right then she felt as if a mast had fallen on her head. Bryn? Here? It's impossible. It is mad. Surely the man could not have followed them all this way for... Oh yes, he could and would. That one would. As they journeyed, she had told herself it was only sensible caution to leave no trace behind, that Elida knew they were not dead, whatever the rumors said, and she would not stop hunting until they were found or she was pulled down. Swan had been irritated at having to ask directions finally, yet the thought that had snapped at her like a shark had not been that Elida might somehow find a blacksmith in one small Altaran village, but that the blacksmith would be like a painted sign for Bryn. Told yourself it was foolish, didn't you? And now here he is. And a little bit further, it says, she had to take hold of herself. She was in a daze, thinking of everything except what she needed to. Concentrate. This is no time to panic. You must send him away, or kill him. She knew it for a mistake while the words were still leaving her mouth, all too full of urgency. Even the warders looked at her, and the eyes said I. She had never before known what it was like for someone who lacked the power to have those eyes turned on them at full strength. She felt naked, her very mind laid bare. Even knowing that Aes I could not read thought, she still wanted to confess before they listed her lies and crimes. She hoped that her face was not like Liana's, red-cheeked and wide-eyed. You know why he's here. Sherriam's voice was calmly certain. Both of you do, and you do not want to confront him, enough that you would have us kill him for you. There do be few great captains living. Newell marked them off in gauntleted fingers. Agalmar Jagad and Davram Bashir will no leave the Blight, I think, and Padron Nile will surely no be of use to you. If Rodolai Aralda do be alive, he do be mired somewhere in what do remain of Arad Doman. 
He raised his thick thumb. And that do leave Gareth Bryn. Do you think that we will need a great captain, then? Jerry asked quietly. Newell and Arinvar did not look at one another, but Swan still had the feeling that they had exchanged glances. It is your decision, Sherim, Arinvar replied just as quietly. Yours and the other sisters. But if you mean to return to the tower, we could use him. If you intend to remain here until a light ascends for you, then not. Mirel gazed at Newell questioningly, and he nodded. It seems that you were right, Swan, Anaya said wryly. We have not fooled the Gaideen. The question is whether he will agree to serve us, Carlinia said, and Morvern nodded, adding, We must make him see our cause in such a way that he wishes to serve. It will not help us if it becomes known that we killed or imprisoned so notable a man before we have even begun. Yes, Bayonin said, and we must offer him the rewards that will bind him to us firmly. Shiriam turned her eyes on the two men. When Lord Bryn reaches the village, tell him nothing but bring him to us. As soon as the door closed behind the warders, her gaze firmed. Swan recognized it, the same clear green stare that had Novice's knees knocking before a word was said. Now, you will tell us exactly why Gareth Bryn is here. Gareth Bryn is someone I would rate a five on the importance scale. A support character with a quiet personal arc whose ultimate goal is to be Egwene's ally. And I think maybe one of the reasons I like the relationship between Bryn and Swan is that she is a character that has to work at being better. And the further from power she gets, the nicer a person she becomes. And a lot of that seems to be because she wants Bryn to see the best of her. And what is true love if not a partner that makes us want to be the best versions of ourselves? Archie weaves this whole subplot of Swan and Gareth Bryn and Saladar and the Rebellion getting locked in so they are stuck on a course they cannot alter to raise a hall and pick an Omerlin and declare that Elida is a usurper and that the Red Aja sets up false dragons. He weaves this into the story in this perfect place in Book 5. It's the best place for it, and it's just organic the way it slips in here, so that Egwene has her supports in place when she gets called before the hall in the next book. It's beautiful. It's a story all its own, filled with compelling people. A tale well worth telling. A vital tale. Because if this story doesn't happen, then Egwene's career cannot commence. Swan can't let power go, because in her eyes no one else is right to rule. But neither is she. Losing power is one of the best things that could happen to her as a person, because she's someone who has to decide to be good. And that doesn't make her a villain. Lots of people have to choose to be good, and most of those aren't self-sacrificing in the way that she is. Still, she's someone who will choose to do wrong things in order to get to the end that's the best thing. And we can assume that sometime between Book 5 and Book 6, the idea that's put forth that you should pick someone who's very strong in the power, someone that was out of the tower at the time that Swan was deposed, that amorphous someone becomes Egwene to the Saladar Six. But Swan has to have already had her in mind. Strong in the power out of the tower are just the first two breadcrumbs she lays to lead the Six to her. And honestly, that's fucking monstrous. Rand, who is Egwene's counterpart, the fang to her flame, just happened to be a kid when the fate that he was born into came to fruition. He started to channel the Taviran Taviran. It just so happened that he was still a teenager. The wheel weaves as the wheel wills. But assholes, manipulators, and cowards chose a kid on purpose in Egwene's case. It's not about the wheel. 
It's about a bunch of gutless shitbags who pick someone to stand in front of them and take the fall. Someone they throw out in the street, and it's like, well, if the bus doesn't run over her, that's great, but if it does, better her than us. And while we can thank Swan that Egwene succeeds so well, that Egwene has the information she needs, and the political knowledge, and also someone to run game behind the scenes, never forget that if not for Swan, they'd never have picked Egwene to throw under the bus in the first place. And while Egwene is an awesome Omerlin, and an amazing character, partly because she rises to this task, when it's not a task that the wheel chooses for you, it's a task that adults who are supposed to be in charge over you because you're still in training put in your lap because they're too chicken shit to do it themselves, or in the case of Swan because she thinks that she can rule through you? That's fucking bullshit. You don't do shit like that to young people and not be a giant asshole. One of the things that I love best about Swan is how much development she gets. She is a dynamic character, full of juxtapositions. Someone who through this first third of the series isn't necessarily a very good person, but manages to achieve really good ends, though her means are absolutely horrendous. RJ puts us through that uncomfortable position of giving us characters where you cheer for them because you know that they want what's right, even though sometimes being on Swan's side makes me feel slightly dirty. But even so, I can't help but love her. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Podcasts of the Dragon. I was stoked to get into this part of my Fires of Heaven analysis. Saladar is always fun to talk about, and hopefully there's a good foundation laid here for later episodes as we delve deeper into rebel, Aes Sedai, machinations, and fuckery. My rough drafts are now available on Patreon. They'll be uploaded two to three weeks before the final, and you'll be able to see how it improved, what I added, and what I cut out. If you'd like to support the show and have access to that or other fun content, there's a link in the show notes. There are other links to my Discord and my email, to the Watt Trivia and Games Discord, and to the Watt Fandom and Calendar Discord, as well as to my Twitter handle, at Pod of the Dragon, and to my YouTube channel. Eventually, they'll drop Season 2, and at some point, I'll be making React videos. Someday. There's also a link to Apple Podcasts if you'd like to go and help me out and give me a review. That would be awesome. It'll help other people find me. And so will word of mouth. So if you know anybody who likes The Wheel of Time and might be interested in a different kind of podcast, please tell them about me. My music is by Kevin McLeod. My name is Morgan. And I'm not just judging Swan and the Salad R6 because it's monstrous to use a kid as a puppet and political shield. I'm also judging them because if you're looking for someone to control, who the fuck picks a teenager? What kind of stupid-ass reasoning is that?